Good morning, everyone. I think, uh, I think Josh did not remember my first words when they figured out that they did not want to preach Nahum and they asked me to. I, if I remember correctly, I said, is that in the Bible? <laughs> I'm a New Testament guy. What, what, I've never memorized the order of the 12. My girls can sing the song and I keep having to say to them, oh, where is Nahum again? <laughs> Before Habakkuk or after? And they know it. So I rely wholly on my nine-year-old and 12-year-old girls Um, But I do appreciate uh, you making it sound like I was just ready, knowing everything about Nahum, to jump right in. I have now been reading and wrestling with and praying about Nahum for, uh, I don't know, maybe a a month, maybe six weeks since we decided this. Uh, And it's been a, a tremendous delight. It's not an easy book to read. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't hit our American taste buds very well. And some of you may have been reading it this week preparing. But there's a certain word that is used in Nahum that we all are very familiar with, the word gospel. In chapter 1, verse 15, we read a a famous statement, look, the mountains, on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news, who brings the gospel. Now, I, I absolutely delight in everything that we've done already in worship here with you. I'm not surprised at all. I've, I've highly valued what I've heard about this ministry, this church, this community here. But I've watched and I've participated and listened now as you have heard the gospel preach, or preached. You've heard it prayed. You've, you've sung it with your own lips. Uh, it's just kind of infused in everything that happens here. Now, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Uh, how vast, how many are my sins, but his grace even more. I mean, just everything we've done has been about the good news of Jesus Christ. That's not exactly how Nahum uses the word good news, though. The word gospel. It's not, it's not uh, at odds with that in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but it's not exactly the same thing. The message of Nahum is, in part, to God's people, and he does not say anything about their own sin. He doesn't challenge them in their sin. This book is about the sins of someone else who has been completely abusive to them and so many others. And the good news of Nahum is, enough is enough. That's the gospel. And that is good news to his people. So, what I'm about to, to share from Nahum may sound different to you than what you normally think of as the gospel. And I'm so grateful that before this and after it, our eyes and our hearts have been on specifically Jesus forgiving our sins, the heart of the gospel. Because uh, I have freedom now to, to let Nahum speak uh, because he doesn't touch on that. He has a different angle that is very important for God's people to hear. It is another true aspect of the good news of God. Now, uh, I I need some responses. I can't see your mouth, so you're going to have to actually speak. I can't read your lips. Um, What is the first thing you think of when you hear the term Nineveh? Jonah. Yes, absolutely. As you see in Nahum 1, verse 1, this is an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Alkosh. 
And everybody thinks of Jonah, and rightly so. Jonah is two books before Nahum. I looked on the table of contents and counted. Uh, Jonah was also 100 years before Nahum. So God had a certain message to Nineveh through Jonah. A hundred years have passed, and God is addressing Nineveh again. Let me just highlight a few things of what happened in Jonah. Uh, Let me just pinpoint a few things. God said to Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Go to that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So their evil has come up before me. That that sounds a lot like what God says a number of times in Scripture. Like in Genesis, he talks about the blood of Abel crying out to him. God hears the the abuse and suffering of people. In Genesis, uh, later uh, with Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, the the screams, the, the, the pain has come up to me, and now I'm coming and sending my angels to see if what these cries have said are true. And sure enough, they were more abuse, and God deals with it. And it's the same thing with Jonah. Their evil has come up before me. Well, Jonah goes in the exact opposite direction. He does not want to go to Nineveh, even though the message is God's against them. Well, a lot of drama happens, and, uh, and God turns Jonah right around through some very interesting means. And then God says again, almost as if nothing has happened, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. Well, finally, Jonah does, and the message he gives is, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. But they repent. All the people, the king of Nineveh, in fact, the king says, let everyone turn away from his evil and from the violence that is in his hands. True repentance spreads, and God has mercy on Nineveh. And Jonah hates that. He says, he says I, God, I knew you were gracious, And merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I knew that. That's why I didn't want to come here. (laughs) I knew you were going to forgive him. Because that's who you are. He's furious. And God's answer to him, after giving him a a little vision, a a plant that grows up to shade him, and then withers and dies, and Jonah is just, ah, this plant. He's lamenting the loss of this plant that gave him such delight. God finishes the entire book with these words. Uh, see, you, you pitied that plant, though it came up all of a sudden, had nothing to do with you, and now it's gone. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left? And there are many cattle, too. Should I not pity them? God does not delight in destroying his creation. God does destroy aspects of his creation when enough is enough and they have not repented. He does not delight in that. And we saw with Nineveh, a hundred years before Nahum, which we're about to turn to, just that. God gave a message, I am going to destroy you. But they repented, God had mercy I said, is that not right? Shouldn't I have pity on them? All these people that are ignorant and and cattle. I mean, the whole creation, God wants to flourish. Well, a hundred years rolls by. A few generations. 
And not only did things go back to the way they were, but they got worse for the Assyrians, for Nineveh, the capital. The, the, the empire spread, and their manner of spreading was terrifying and violent and bloody. They came all the way over, and let's put a map up so you can see. This will give you some kind of frame of reference. On your left, that's current day uh, Middle East. You can see, maybe if you know your map, there's Saudi Arabia right in the middle. Above that is Iraq and Turkey and Syria with Israel sandwiched right in the middle, right on the Mediterranean Sea. And on your right here, that's the same picture, but the orange is the Assyrian Empire at the time when now Nahum is speaking. You can see that uh, Nineveh is kind of at the top of the orange around the curve, and they've just taken over through Palestine, Jerusalem, all the way into Egypt, down the Nile. Thebes is there, which you'll hear mentioned in Nahum. They've taken all that. Israel's right in the middle. Uh, Assyria has already taken away the northern country of Israel. They were marched, they marched against and were surrounding Judah. It was terrifying, this bloodthirsty people, and God saved Judah. So Judah, now go to the next slide because you'll see a slightly different picture. And all that green uh, is the Assyrian Empire. But look at Judah, that little yellow blob. Uh, Judah is, is ruling itself, but they're surrounded, completely engulfed in this violent uh, people who have taken over all over the place. And they're being pressured by them. Uh, tributes are being exacted. There's always the threat of their violence. This is, so, a hundred years later, from God's mercy on Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, things have gotten worse. And now the good news of God for his people, Judah, good news is, enough is enough. I'm going to answer this and deal with it, and it's good news for you. And that's the aspect of the gospel that, that Nahum presents to God's people. Now, I came across a, a statement of someone who loves preaching through Nahum uh, when I was preparing, and he said, the best thing a preacher can do to preach through Nahum is get out of the way and let the text speak, because this is an amazing book. It's rich with imagery. It's dramatic it's terrifying and comforting. The images just pop all over the place. So what I'm going to do now is I'm, now that I've kind of tried to set the scene so you can feel something of what the original audience might have felt, I'm going to try to step out of the way by basically reading through the text. It takes seven or eight minutes to just go straight through. So we're going to go through a little bit. I might make a, an occasional comment to try to bring something out, have it resonate with us the way it originally would have. I'm also going to give, if you can pull up the next screen, uh, just a, a basic structure as we go so you can kind of get a sense of what is happening, big picture, through Nahum. So after the opening line, um, it launches into a picture of God. It doesn't speak anything about Nineveh yet. It says, this is God. Not in general, not everything about God, but something very specific about God that is important for Nineveh and the Judites to hear, right, in this time period. So the first thing we're going to see is this is God. Who he is, how he acts, the effect he has. 
And that will prepare us for everything that comes. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. By the way, as we continue, picture this in your mind. It's it's all of this very vivid language. Picture this cloud coming like a storm is coming, sort of like pictured there, and you see the cloud rolling in, and he says, that the cloud's coming, that's, that's the dust on God's feet as he's walking this way. This is terrifying. Picture it. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? How how would you answer that question after what you just read? Who can stand against his anger and indignation? Well, the wind cannot, the sea cannot, the rivers cannot, the flowers cannot, the mountains and hills cannot, the earth cannot, the world and its inhabitants, everything melts and quakes and heaves before him. Who can stand? Oh my goodness, absolutely no one. His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. (laughs) Did that shock anybody else? When I was reading through this, getting into this, this terror, this true raw fear of God, and then it says, the Lord is good. It's like a slap in the face. It's almost like you, you, you've already been slapped in the face. You walk into this room. Uh, this is an oracle about Nineveh. And bam, the Lord has, is vengeful. And like, okay, now I'm getting my bearings here. This is terrifying. And then bam, the Lord is good. What a thing to get hit in the face by. And a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Picture God's people at this time. Remember that little tiny yellow in this sea of green, though it should have been red with blood, as we'll come to? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Pause. A shift happens now. All right, it's been describing who God is, what he's like, the effect he has, and all of a sudden it shifts, and the prophet starts giving these oracles specifically to people now. So he's not describing God anymore at this point. He speaks to and about Nineveh, and then he shifts and speaks to Judah, and then he shifts to speak to Nineveh, and then he shifts to speak to Judah again. So look at this. And that will be the next slide. In verse eight, uh, sorry, verse 9. 
What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. It's a bit like that big guy that steps in uh, to face off this smaller person and says, there's going to be two hits in this fight. I'm going to hit you and you're going to hit the ground. Trouble's not going to rise up a second time. For they, speaking about Nineveh now, uh, again, they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble fully dried. From you, speaking to Nineveh now, uh, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Now he shifts to speak to Judah. Thus says the Lord, though they, Nineveh, are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Now he shifts back to Nineveh. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut, you off. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. You know, when we think about somebody making our grave, we'd like for it to be maybe our, our kids or loved ones. They'll put a little epithet on it. You know, something that, that probably honors us. It says something nice, maybe. Every, especially back in these days, the, the kings would have these tremendously wonderful graves made for them by their friends, family, who honored them. And God is saying, no, no, I'm going to make your grave. And I'm going to tell the truth. You are vile. Look upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, gospel, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Okay, pause again, because there is another shift in Nahum. So first it was, this is who God is that you need to know. Then here are some oracles specifically about Nineveh to Judah to Nineveh to Judah. Now he shifts, speaking to Nineveh again, but it's not the same kind of short oracle. It's, it's a longer one. And in fact, God starts describing the battle, the moment when he's about to come and destroy them. And he goes into some detail about this. And when he's describing this battle, uh, he, he gives the reason why he's coming. Then he tells them to prep for battle. He describes their preparation for this, this coming invasion by the Lord. Uh, then he describes the battle. And you see it's in quotes. We'll have to see whether it's actually a battle of any sort. But he describes that part. He describes the victory and he describes the aftermath. And then he gives a a slam-in-the-face conclusion again. So look at at chapter 2, the moment of truth. The scatterer has come upon against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, 
for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. It's God's reasoning. So, the shield of the mighty men is red. This is the prep for battle. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots are race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. Ready for the battle? The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Would you describe that as a battle? It's like a prep for one, right? And then, nope, it's just over. It's exactly like at the end of Revelation, where Satan is released for a a bit more time and gathers these forces that is a bit like in in Lord of the Rings, the very final film where this small band following the king, uh, the the good people, are surrounded at the gates of Mordor by this vast army. I mean, it just completely engulfs them. There's absolutely no hope. In Lord of the Rings, there's a really cool battle that you're not sure which way it's going to go. In Revelation, it's not. They gather around this tiny camp of God, and fire comes from heaven and devours all of the bad guys. It's just over. And and this is like a little tiny taste of that. It says, they're ready. They're on the ramparts, ready to go. Okay, the river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girl's lamenting, moaning like doves, beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! They cry. But none turns back. You can picture that. A pool, like with these walls around the pool, and then one of the walls is just busted out, and you just watch the water just gush right out, and the level is going down, and somebody's like, no, no, get back in the city! It's just, there's no hope in front of God. These evil people are like a pool. The water's running away saying, halt, halt, but, but no, none turns back. And then now here's the victory. As God says to his people, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. It's over. Take the stuff. And now the aftermath. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. By the way, the Assyrians loved their lions. They're pictures on stones from this time period that show king after king as sport, like in an arena, um, shooting lions with their bow and arrow or calmly standing there in all their glory, holding a lion and running it through. Lions, they would collect them, but they'd also show their dominance by killing these lions. And now here's this imagery. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb, the lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled the caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. And now here's the slap you in the face conclusion. Look, behold, behold, that doesn't hit us like I think it should. Look at me, I'm against you declares the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke. The sword shall devour your young lions. 
I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Is this what you thought of when you heard the term gospel? Good news? Except that is right in the middle of what we've read. That's, that's what it's called. Look, the messenger's coming over the mountains, the feet of somebody bringing the gospel, declaring peace, meaning our enemies are completely demolished by the God who cares for us. Chapter 3, you can put this next. So this is why God's against Assyria. So far, he hasn't exactly said. He just said he is against them. Well, now he gives some more details by giving these woes upon Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to their prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Man. In fact, in the, in the welcome chamber of the king of Assyria, you can see the, the artworks etched in, uh, in stone, one of the welcome rooms where like foreign dignitaries would be brought to meet the king of Assyria, there were these murals all over the place of the Assyrians completely demolishing whole cities. Like a whole panel where everybody in this one city was impaled. Just there for anybody who walks in to see, this is who we are. This is who you're coming to meet. And as, the, as Nahum describes it, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies, without end, they stumble over the bodies. This is a violent people. And they're not the only ones in this world, in history or now. Makes me want to think about even, even how Jesus compares murder with what we do with our with our hate in our hearts and, and how the words are described as a, a sharp two-edged sword and words as darts hitting people. I mean, violence. This is speaking about physical violence, that it, and we need to keep that in kind of the forefront of our mind, um, this powerful army that, that physically demolishes everyone. But how much violence of other sorts is there, even in, even in the church? How often are you the person who, who cuts down somebody, your spouse or your kids or your neighbor, with, uh, with perpetual swords, daggers, and arrows from, from your lips? But I'm not going to go there because that's not exactly what Nam's talking about. All And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. This is verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4. All for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. It's like the, the prostitute who's calling to a young man to come from the street, like you see in uh, Proverbs. And he comes in and, and his life is just destroyed. And he says, this is like Assyria. They're, they're wooing all of these nations. Come, we'll protect you, pay us some money, we'll keep you safe. This is like they're, 
they're prostituting themselves, and then when people are lulled into their charms, they just massacre them, exile them from their lands, force them to intermarry so that the whole people groups exist no longer. Can you see God is saying enough is enough, and this is really good news for the world, let alone for his people surrounded by this. Okay, there's a shift again. Another slap in the face. Look at me, I am against you. Now he shifts, and this is now God's response to all of that that he just described. This is a bloody people who murder and massacre and deceive uh, deceive people. What's God's response? Starting in verse 5. God's response and mocks. He mocks Assyria here. Look at me, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face. I'll make the nations look at your nakedness, the kingdoms at your shame. Parents, I'm sure you're going to have some good conversations with your kids at the dinner table after this. I will make the nations look at your nakedness and the kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? His mocking continues. He, he turns their attention to a people that the Assyrians have already destroyed. And God's about to make the comparison. It, they thought they could stand, but you, you took them out, no matter how strong they seemed. This is about to happen to you. So he's kind of go, hitting personal here, right, right with something they've done recently. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and the, wall her, uh, the water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit, Put, and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first-ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Look, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Now there's one last shift. I think it's one last. Yeah, one last shift. God, Assyria's end is certain. He said, and he tells him in this section, go ahead and prep. Do it. Prep. And it's inevitable. And then he says it again. Go ahead. Prepare. It's inevitable. And he says it a third time. Let's see what what he says. Verse 14. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes, the clouds of locusts, settling on the fence in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. 
Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. And now listen to the, to the finale of the book and think about whether you'd love this to be said about you. Thinking about the epithet of your grave. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Think about that. An epithet. When you are killed, everybody celebrated. Because finally you are gone. Wow. And you know, God did it. This all was said before he did it. And then God was faithful. God did it. He raised up the Babylonians who came across and demolished the Assyrian Empire. Pockets of it remained. Uh, but it was, it was destroyed. God is faithful. He's just. He is good to his people. Now, interestingly, the pattern kept happening to his people. I mean, Assyria he defeated, like he said he would here. The Babylonians conquered, and then they were ruling harshly. And then God sent the Medes and the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. And the Medes and the Persians were over his people. And then Greece. God sent Greece to defeat the Persians. And then Greece was over God's people. And then, well, for a brief time, some Jews, the Hasmoneans, took back the land from Greece. And, and for a hundred years, they oppressed their own people. God sent the Romans, who took back Israel from the, Greece, uh, the Greeks and these Hasmoneans. And the Romans were in charge when Jesus came. So this, this keeps happening. God showed tremendous mercy, a gospel, to his people by holding the evil nation accountable and, and getting rid of them. But then he did it again and again and again, and it's this pattern. And when, when Jesus comes, to, with this history in mind, all of these oppressors over God's people, and, and God says, call his name Jesus, Joshua, that's the name, it means Yahweh saves. That's what the name means. Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. Call this little baby's name the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. Something much more fundamental. As wonderful as it is that God takes care of true injustices physically in this world, politically, God does say enough is enough. But he had to deal with something that's in all of us. Something very deep. He had to take care of this, the types of sins that I alluded to earlier. The types of violences that we all do. Ours don't escalate to the place that the Assyrian Empire did. But it's the same quality. Just a little just smaller. But it still destroys people. But, but this God who crushed Assyria. And who takes sin so seriously took our sins and he crushed his son so that he would not crush us. God is good to crush evil people massacre who massacre others. That, that's good and that's good news. 
but he's, he's good at t- to crush the even bigger oppressor, which is Satan, our own sin, and death itself. So th- there are a lot of things to keep in mind and in our hearts as we're reading through Nahum. Primary, what the book's primarily about is physical, political oppressors and violence and God taking care of that. But we cannot get far away from from realizing that that the Lord Jesus has defeated the even bigger enemy, Satan. He has defeated the even bigger enemy, sin. He has defeated the even bigger enemy, death, the last enemy, through Jesus dying and rising for us. And to wrap this up, I want to draw your attention to, to some other aspect of the gospel that we still have to look forward to in the future that is much more like Nahum than like the mercy that I just proclaimed to you. Because we, we should still be anticipating a day when God will say about all violence and injustices and abuses in the world, enough is enough. The end has come. I'm going to deal with this now completely. We should still be hungering for that. I mean, just think about... Think about the people in heaven right now, the souls of those who have been martyred. I've got uh, Rome, sorry, Revelation 6 right here on my phone. Listen to this. This is people in heaven with Jesus right now. And, and there's, there's something going on in their souls, in their hearts, in their emotions in heaven, even though they're not being abused any longer on earth. Something is going on in them that we should really take note of. Revelation 6, starting in verse 9. When Jesus opened the fifth seal from his throne, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Did you know that there's frustration in heaven because there's still violence unresolved on the earth? How long, God? Yeah, we're with you in heaven. We, we get to be face to face with Jesus. Yay, and that's wonderful and good, but it's not over yet. When are you going to take care of everything going on in this world? All of the violence, not just the Assyrian Empire. Everything. This should be our hunger as well. So don't stop with the part of the gospel that is God's tremendous mercy on us. Delight in that, absolutely. But don't stop with that. Crave the God who is the same as in Nahum's day and who is coming as he sends Jesus to deal with with everything fully. That is the gospel. That is good news for his people. Enough is enough is good news. This is our God. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father in heaven, this world is so complicated, but you in your infinite wisdom, know exactly what you're doing, 
even though it frustrates us sometimes, many times. And we don't know what you're doing. And we cry to you. But we see here, Lord, in your word, in your history, you do call people to account. Help us delight in the fact that you called your son to account for our sins. And help us hunger for your full-scale justice to be done on earth. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.